Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find the podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. Welcome to the latest episode of Reach In, Reach Out, YASP's podcast. And in the YASP podcast, we touch on a whole range of hot topics on suicide prevention. And today I'm absolutely delighted. We've got Dr. Hazel Marsetti and Hazel's at the University of Edinburgh. And so welcome, Hazel, and thanks a million for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting. Yeah, no, it is exciting. I'm really excited to, hear, excited to hear a bit of what you've been doing recently. And in full disclosure, I know Hazel well. Hazel, I was one of Hazel's co-supervisors of her PhD, and it was a fantastic piece of work, a detailed interviews, which we'll hear about shortly with young people, with LGBTQI plus young people, and really talking about their suicidal experiences. So Hazel, maybe just before we get into the detail of that and the detail of some of the work you've been doing with Amy Chandler in Edinburgh, could you just maybe rewind a bit and tell us about how you got into the sort of work that you've been doing into mental health and suicide prevention research? Because I know you were, you've obviously a history, a life before yeah, your PhD. Yeah, I do. So I think, so I became really interested in LGBTQ plus mental health, I think, kind of just through both my personal and professional experiences of LGBTQ plus suicide. I think I became kind of aware of this really super young, kind of at university for the first time doing my undergrad and being really involved in our LGBTQ plus society. I was really aware that there were lots of people around me who were struggling with all sorts of different mental health issues, but also particularly with suicidal distress. And that then became something that I wanted to incorporate into what I was doing. So prior to and during actually my doctoral studies, I was volunteering in an LGBTQ plus youth work setting. um, And that that was something that was a real driver for me to get into youth work was wanting to see kind of what is going on and how can I help young LGBTQ plus people who, you know, I was once and now would like to try and, and give back and try and work with young people who were experiencing different types of distress and so that was kind of how I got into it and then I got really interested in it so much so that I decided to do a PhD at Glasgow that was kind of that was based around it. Okay we'll come back to PhD in a a second though. I think in terms of the my first met that's what I was really struck about you was because you had that sort of activism is probably the wrong word but that sort of passion (laughs) for young people and obviously LGBTQ young people who are really were struggling and and I think your volunteering really brought you brought so much to the project but we'll come back to that in a second because before we get into details of the PhD 
and uh, and so on. You've also in, so you finished your PhD and went to Edinburgh, yeah. where you currently are a research associate, I think. And and in and that project, one of the projects you've been working on there with Amy Chandler, yeah. a professor, and like Professor Amy Chandler is the suicide in as politics. Yeah. So could you tell us what that is? Yeah. What you've what so you I know you've had some exciting deliverables yeah. recently. So it'd be great to hear about that. Yeah. So the Suicide in As Politics project is a Leverhulme funded project. We are almost three years through it. We'll be finishing up uh, in March of next year. But the project was wanting to look at suicide through a kind of both sociological and political lens. So trying to really bring that interdisciplinary approach into the study of suicide, which is very often thought about within what we would think about as like psychology or psychiatry or even epidemiology. But that kind of the politics of suicide is something that is really very rarely talked about, I think. And so this project had kind of two phases to it. The first phase was a critical policy analysis um, where we used the approach called what is the problem represented to be to see how suicide prevention policies, but also political debates pertaining to suicide and charity document in the UK between 2009 and 2019, which is the 11 year period following the financial crash, how they represented suicide, how they understood suicide and following on from that, what they therefore thought suicide prevention needed to be. And so that was our phase one. Can you jump on there for a second? Go on. What's this method? You you described this method. What's that method called again? What is the problem? What is the problem represented to be? And it's Batchy and Goodwin's approach. And basically, it's trying to think through the different ways in which a problem is kind of constructed and, and then represented in different types of documents. The idea being that social kind of problems don't exist kind of independently out in the world and we go and try and find them, but we actually think about them and we construct them through our social practices. So for suicide, what do we consider suicide to be and what do we think it isn't? So I think we have lots of those conversations around some of those dividing lines between, for example, suicide and assisted suicide. We think about them as being slightly different kind of phenomena. And that is because we are as kind of autonomous agents, we are putting together what we think goes in these different kinds of boxes, if you like. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that does. And does that come from political science or from sociology or where where's that method come from? I think from? it's critical social policy, technically, right, okay. I think. Yeah. And and then yeah. so the methods, so then it's been applied obviously to a range of other policies. You've obviously applied it to yeah. suicide. And then so then get back to detail then. So over that yeah. 10 or 11 period post the crash, so in many policies, yep. is it eight or ten policy documents? So it's, you eight, it's eight policies, and I think it's 7,664 references to suicide in the four parliaments and assemblies of the UK. I think it's that many. Was that any policy? That was the only policies published in those time periods. Was it... Did they have to be suicide-specific policies? Yeah, so they're the eight suicide prevention policies, strategies, or action plans. So actually it works out as two per nation. So two in England, two in Scotland, two in Wales, and two in Northern Ireland. Well, that's nice and balanced, certainly. So then tell me, so the process, you go about that then. So so how do you then go about scrutinising these policies and and obviously analysing them? So there are several kind of guide questions from the what is the problem represented to be approach where you kind of go through the policies and try and answer the the kind of analytical questions that are in the framework. And so we put all that together and we came up with some kind of core themes 
And then we took those core themes and um, created some, what I like to think about as being kind of accessible resources. So these are really like cut down versions with kind of sections that that represented those themes, but weren't, of course, all of the data that came from in there because they would have been really, really overwhelming, enormous documents. But really tried to cut them yeah. down into accessible documents, which we then shared with community groups, but particularly community groups who were either um, from communities disproportionately affected by suicide or were um, practitioners working in communities disproportionately affected by suicide. And with them, we ran a series of arts-based workshops where we shared these kind of data extracts with them and said, what do you think of them? And we used a range of kind of artistic methods, so collaging, poetry making, to try and help people to get to know that data, explore it, gain some familiarity with it, but also to be able to gain enough familiarity with it that if they wanted to, they were able to express an opinion on it. So in a group setting, so people were in workshop groups with people that they didn't know, and we knew that it might be a bit tricky for them to think about suicide and suicide prevention, talk about suicide and suicide prevention. And so these arts-based methods were really to try and help to explore that data and to be able to express people's views on it and so that and so i mean that sounds fascinating and so in terms of the task that they were asked to do so that you're they obviously had to familiarize themselves with the with yep. the documents but then so what was what was their ask to tell them to tell you what what those documents or what those whatever aspects of policy meant to them is that what they so, so basically we wanted to use it as a tool for discussion so we asked people questions like well, what surprises you about these documents what do you like about them what do you think of their mm-hmm. strength and what do you think that if you had free reign you might change and do differently but we had they were workshop series so people came kind of three or four times to two hour workshops they run each like consecutive weeks and so people had different ranges of tasks. So, for example, a collage task might be on the kind of like what surprises you, what do you like, what would you change? But we also did blackout poetry with the ministerial forewords. I think ministerial forewords are super interesting in policies because they're kind of well, the only the time. There, you said, what did you just say there? What's that poetry called? It's called blackout poetry. It's and it's an it. avant-garde poetic technique where you can basically you use a black marker pen, like a permanent marker or a sharpie, to remove the words in the policies that you think that that are unnecessary for your poem and you keep doing that iteratively until you're left with the words that you want to compose your poem and when you think about the ministerial forwards they're kind of the only time in a policy where a politician's voice is really heard which is really interesting in and of itself but actually going through multiple iterations of reading one of these ministerial forwards and thinking about it and with those the guide questions were things like what do you think the politician is saying so people could just say oh this is a summary of what I think they're saying or they could get a little bit more critical and they could say what they thought the politician might want to say but be unable to within there so lots of people chose to do that or people could reply to the minister so what did they want to say back and so those multiple iterative kind of blackings out of the poem meant that they really got to know those ministerial forces and they could really think about what they wanted to say and that along with all of the collages and all of the artworks made in the workshops are in our current exhibition which I think we're going to put a link to in the show notes if that's possible 
And so hold on, so so just give us a shout out for the exhibition though. Is it's online? Yeah, so it's a it's a digital exhibition that we're hosting, and you can go onto it. You can do a guided tour if you want. We've got some little bits of information, or you can just wander around the exhibition yourself. That's a better way, I guess, to see the individual artworks. Is if you kind of have a wander. We've got a variety of different rooms, so we've got one that is kind of an overview of the project, kind of more general views on suicide and suicide prevention. We have a dedicated room to LGBTQ plus suicide and suicide prevention. We have a room for the poetry that are responding to ministerial forwards in in the variety of ways I just said. We have one that was work led by my colleague Alex Oten, who's at the University of Lincoln, who kind of really worked with practitioners who were working with or supporting people going through the criminal justice system. And then we have a room that was working in an organisation where there were practitioners, particularly volunteer practitioners, working with people who were having a mental health crisis in an out-of-hours setting. So really supporting that kind of of out-of-hours care. And so we've got a room dedicated to each of them. And if you walk up to them in your digital room, you can click on them and then you can hear a bit more from the participants about why they made that particular piece of art. Fantastic. And what's the website? I know we'll put it in the show notes, but just what is the website? Just so we... It's just a, it's hosted by, on a website called Art Steps. So if you Google Art Steps, I assume yeah. you might find Well, okay. so no, so it will have to be, we'll have to put the link because Art Steps has got all sorts of different exhibitions oh, okay, okay. on it. So, okay, check the show notes then. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So then, <laughs> Hazel, then what, so, okay, what were your key, so you, those outputs sound fantastic and I, um, I haven't had a chance to look at the website now, definitely will do. But what were the key messages? So in terms of what what do we now know about the policy, whatever the policy, the positioning of policies, the focus of policies in that crucial period post the last recession that we didn't know before you did the work? What are your key take-homes? I guess there's a really interesting thing that that's coming up, which is around kind of really pushing back against the pathologization of suicide. So people saw suicide as being really connected to their their kind of structural experiences of things like austerity, border controls, racism, transphobia, these really big structural issues. And I think that that's really important because so often I think in policy we really focus on what I've called like an interpersonal model of suicide prevention, which is really, really important, right? Being able to find someone to talk to when you're experiencing distress is crucial. But at the same time, having that balance with these kind of structural or systemic, participants often use words kind of systemic version of suicide prevention, where actually these bigger things like austerity are tackled. Because, you know, people were talking about, as really, really insightful, one participant said, you know, like, if we don't tackle these big systemic issues, that actually it's suicide postponement. And I thought that phrase is really very powerful, is this idea that actually yeah, that if you're doing this kind of interpersonal type of suicide prevention, that's obviously really, really important. It's really important people can access support at times of crisis. But actually, if that's happening within a context that is really harmful, but isn't changing, then actually that's suicide postponement. It's not suicide prevention. I thought that was just really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it really highlights, I mean, it's so powerful. And it really highlights, as we know, that if we're to tackle suicide, I mean, really at a public health level, we have to tackle those structural inequalities qualities and that yeah and and ask ourselves for me it's often about if we think about minority groups and there's mm-hmm. different ways in which we conceptualize minority status but in yeah. most cases they're increased risk of suicide and that's 
for a whole range of different reasons. But the key one is, I still see it as sort of interpersonal, though, interestingly, <laughs> but the interpersonal is between the individual and this sort of nameless group of people and the, the structural elements which are maybe conveying or contributing to their suicide risk, either through ongoing inequality, disadvantage, racism, discrimination, stigma, all that sort of stuff. So fascinating work. And then so as your next steps to that, that project then, Hazel? So at the moment, we've kind of we've collected together all of that data and we have this this big, beautiful data set that we're working on. So at the moment, what we're trying to do, we have these kind of key, these key events last week, which was an in-person kind of workshop and talk and exhibition that people could physically come to in Edinburgh, where I work. And then the, the launch of the digital exhibition. And we've got a couple of zines that will be coming out on our own Suicide in Us Politics website over the next few weeks. That's from this work. Mm-hmm. But our next like crucial step is then writing that up for the academic community. So we're currently kind of trying to, to get some papers out about this to, to make sure that we're contributing back to that conversation as we're closing the project up. And it's next year, the project finishes in 2024, is that correct? Yeah, so it's so it'll be finishing at the end of March 2024, and then I'll be moving on to the to the welcome project afterwards. Excellent. We'll come back, we'll hear about the welcome project in a second. So now so then what's this space then, Hazel? It sounds like a, yeah. a fascinating piece of work, and we're really interested to obviously see the, the academic outputs as well as obviously the, mm-hmm. the visual outputs on the website and so on. Okay, so if it's okay then, Hazel, let's move on to your other Another hat that I would see you wearing is, so you're obviously looking at the broader political policy interface with with the work you've just discussed. But obviously, going back to sort of where we, we began in the podcast and the uh, LGBTQ plus work that you've been mm-hmm. doing. So, so first, before we get into the detail of the work that you've been doing, can you give the sort of our listeners a sense of the overview of what we know about the sort of current rates of suicide? or suicidal behaviour in the LGBTQ population? And, yes. and maybe if you can do it with young people as well across the world. Yeah, and I think, I think that that actually in and of itself is probably quite an important point for, to reflect on as a research community, which is that actually the majority of our work on LGBTQ plus community suicides are with young people. And so that is the, the kind of group of people that we know the most about, right? We think that globally we're somewhere between three and four times more likely to see LGBTQ plus people um, experiencing suicidal thoughts and attempts when compared to their cisgender heterosexual counterparts. But actually there's interesting intercommunity variations within that. We know that trans people are much more likely to think about an attempt suicide than their cisgender counterparts in the LGBTQ plus community. We know that bisexual people are often thought about as being an elevated risk as well. But one of the really crucial things that we don't know is we have very poor death data that recording sexual orientation or gender identity. So we really don't have a great picture of LGBTQ plus deaths by suicide. And that's something that I would really love to see change in the future. And also we don't have a great deal of information about the experiences of people aged under 16 or over 25. And I think that they are they are gaps that, that really trouble me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's continually start, alarms me that that we don't record those data on the death data. Remember, only recently we've got we've got recent or decent ethnicity data. So that's yeah, I suppose for sure. Over the time, and so hopefully we'll get those data because exactly yet yeah, our evidence, without doubt, it's very very clear and overwhelmingly we know that across the lifespan. But obviously, young people we're focusing on here, LGBTQ plus young people are definitely at increased risk of non-fatal suicidal behaviours. 
self-harm and suicidal thoughts. But we need that extra data. And in some senses, it'll, it'll just reinforce the, the devastating yeah. story. But but also to help us, as you highlighted nicely there, Hazel, is which groups are particularly high risk and what is going on with mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the rates of, of suicide, for example, in the trans community versus bisexual versus other people identify in, in different ways. But you're obviously one of the group of people who's trying to uh, move forward with our understanding. Yeah. So we don't, we may not have all the information in terms of absolute prevalence and so on. But maybe could you tell us a bit about, first of all, what you tell us a bit about your PhD work, fascinating mm-hmm. work, and the listener can read about it in social science and medicine and elsewhere yeah. for, for the work you've been doing. Could you tell us a bit about yeah what you did and what you found? Yeah. So my project was a kind of really in-depth qualitative study. I was really interested in, we had all these kind of statistics about rates of suicidal thoughts and attempts amongst LGBTQ plus young people. But I was really interested to understand what is happening there. And so we did an in-depth interview-based study with 24 LGBTQ plus young people who live in Scotland specifically. And in that, I think the kind of the really key finding, right, was the balancing. So LGBTQ plus young people are both LGBTQ plus and young people. And I think that that's something that's often missed out in this research is that it isn't just everything kind of about sexual orientation and gender identity, but it's really, and for me, I think the minority stress model really speaks to me because it is that balancing, right, of the everyday stresses that that all people have to face, the everyday stresses that specifically young people have to face. And then in addition to that, the the stresses that are specific to being LGBTQ plus and those kind of bringing those together was something that was was really important through the findings of my PhD study, where, of course, we did talk about those kind of LGBTQ plus specific factors. Within that, we're thinking about things like cis-heteronormativity. So by that, I mean the kind of everyday comments or questions that LGBTQ plus young people in this study were experiencing that meant that they were kind of othered, that they knew that those around them didn't consider them to be kind of normal like other young people. And that kind of constant reinforcing of otheredness allowed a kind of fertile ground on which other experiences of queer phobia, so things like homophobic, biphobic, transphobic bullying in the playground, to not only to, to flourish because of this kind of more general normative atmosphere, but also to become something that those LGBTQ plus young people themselves thought was normal. It was normal mm-hmm. to be a gay young person who was bullied to them. And that, of course, is really problematic for what that does to someone's internal kind of thinking and feeling and relating to themselves. But in addition to that, it also enabled kind of situations in which when a young person came out to their to their families, that was something that could be a real point of contention. And it meant that for that young person in the middle of it, it could feel like there was no space in which it was safe to be themselves, right? They couldn't go to school and be themselves. They couldn't go home and be themselves. And that then leads to the thing that we talk about in the social science and medicine paper, this idea of kind of queer entrapment, where actually they feel like they have nowhere to go and therefore suicide in that context could be conceptualised as a way to escape. Yeah, no, because actually I'm always struck and I do some talks on this. I often include the quote from Lily, I think it is, from, yeah. from the study. Yeah. Really, really powerful quote from Lily in which Lily talks about obviously the role of feeling that's actually that if she ended her life or ended their life, that basically their family would feel better because that the pressure and the fact that yeah. well the stigma and discrimination she felt from family so really highlights that 
Well, come back to your point earlier about the interpersonal component, that interpersonal mm-hmm. sort of strife. And in, and then obviously, as you note, being internalized um, as well, as self-hatred or self-loathing and and feeling a burden on, on others around them. Yeah. But then in that paper and in other, the other parts of the PhD, you, you talk about you didn't you don't just describe the problems and, and trying to understand the phenomena of suicide risk in this population, but you've also some solutions you propose in some in terms of recommendations for what what we we, we as a society could be doing differently. So do you want to say a bit about what I mean what what we can we do? What are our solutions? How do we move this forward? How do we protect these vulnerable young people? Yeah, and so I think probably a, quite a crucial thing that that we talk about in the PhD and in the paper is this idea that actually suicidal distress isn't situated in that individual young person right it's situated in the in-between of this kind of cis-heteronormative cultural climate the queer phobia that is happening within families within society within peers in schools all that sort of thing and the young person living in distress and in those spaces in between I think there's space for intervention and in particular in thinking about how those interventions which so often focus on young people individually but actually think about about how we could intervene to improve queer phobia in our broader society and actually think about social interventions to help society to better understand and uh, support LGBTQ plus people. And I think that that is, is super important, is thinking about, well, actually, the young person themselves who's experiencing suicidal distress, they are not the problem, right? It's mm-hmm. this very, very tricky cultural climate that we have that is that, that is a challenge. And that is where we could maybe think about interventions focusing. Yeah, we can have such an important message because because I think there's still too many people who situate the risk in the individual, and that is yeah. so wrong. It's not of the, the individual is the victim in this context, and it's not yeah. their, it's not their fault. And there's nothing. It's not their identity yeah. or their sexuality which is the issue. It's society's response to that, and then and mm-hmm. as you say, you really look at at all levels of intervention. Helping parents maybe who are struggling with this to whatever is one yeah. way forward, but it, 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 as a societal level more broadly is just challenging which is just downright I mean a stigma and discrimination which is obviously impacts on mental health and obviously increases suicide risk but then on that sort of related note then Hazel so thinking then about barriers to young people more broadly seeking help but did anything come out of your PhD work on what are the key barriers to help seeking? Yeah so we have a second page from this study which is in child and adolescent mental health and in particular that looks at those experiences of trying to seek help and I think something that was really important to me that came out of this was this idea of that kind of first point of contact of being able to go into a service and be able to be seen and taken seriously because I think something that can be really tricky is if you are trying to access support and that first point of contact is in any way dismissive right and if you're in a really heightened state of distress that can be you know that could be a really simple comment that is that is said that is really that is dismissive that maybe the person themselves wouldn't even think twice about it right they probably don't even register it but for that individual in distress who is trying to seek help that first point of contact is, is really really important and I think that, that that something that is kind of that maybe goes around this is is young people feeling that their distress is is kind of bad enough yeah. and uh, we had numerous kind of conversations about what actually you know that with a young person saying oh well you know it wasn't it wasn't bad enough and I think that that is 
really, yeah, the idea that a young person might play down their own suicidal distress might begin to internalize these narratives that suicidal thoughts are not bad enough to be able to be supported is just to me like it's it's just really tragic and I think although I can understand why perhaps in clinical settings that happens because everyone's really stretched because resources are really scarce because there just isn't the supply to meet the demand of people who need support at the same time that just shouldn't be the case there should be support available for young people who want to access what is effectively early intervention we should welcome that right we should welcome someone coming forward and asking for for early intervention asking for support at that kind of really early stage yeah no totally but I think there's a wider issue uh, which is that I think still as a society we still demonize teenagers young people still too often so there's that broader conceptualization that oh rather than young people being our like I mean famously being our future it's seeing young people as too often problematized and and again and 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 of course if you live in that society and you feel that and then you have this other minority status on top of being young a young person i like that intersectionality idea he touched on earlier hazel of course that just compounds a problem and creates barriers for people seeking help and 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 again in the early intervention is, is 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 the key here and not only is it the ethical and the right thing to do, if we intervene earlier, economically it makes yeah. sense as well because people hopefully get the help when they need it. Hopefully that's more effective, and and then obviously re- obviously recover hopefully more quickly and more and in a more sustained way. So maybe then moving on then a bit, Hazel to so that's obviously on the barriers to help seeking. So then, so where this obviously podcast is to a wide audience. So what 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 sort of tips or what can we all do as friends and allies? to create a more inclusive and supportive environment for LGBTQ plus young people? So I think there are, you know, this is a key challenge, right? And I think that there's something from the PhD that I'm hoping that we'll be able to kind of pick up in the future work, which is lots of people kind of in in the PhD, you know, when you'd ask them like, what, what would be, what would be good for the future of LGBTQ plus suicide prevention people spoke about you know really really practical things like well we need to have support available to us we need to have LGBTQ plus representations in popular culture and society that might you know make sure that people see LGBTQ plus people as basically nothing special just an average Joe and I think that that idea of like you know just just being average right like that's that's the ambition you don't want to be particularly spectacular you just want to be kind of average and and seen like anyone else but I I think the thing that I was I really want to pick up on in the future is this idea people talked about oh it would be helpful if services had a level of LGBTQ plus awareness that then if they either knew that actually were had an LGBTQ plus awareness themselves or were aware that they didn't have that specialism and so they could refer on to other services that did. And I guess something that I would have loved if I had more time on the PhD, but I'm hoping to pick up in future work would be to kind of unpick what does it mean to have an lgbtq plus awareness like what what would yeah. be kind of useful and so yeah so that's that's a future ambition rory that hopefully we'll get to do in the next project okay well then that nicely brings us on to work that you're doing now so you've yeah. just awarded this really prestigious welcome award and so tell us Tell us about it and what it's called, what's, what you're hoping to do. I don't yeah. know, has it started yet? 
Has it started yet? So eight, no, so it dovetails with the yeah. current project. So it will start in April 2024, which is super exciting. We're starting on I'm April not, Fool's not Day. I'm away, hoping that's... Away. No, it isn't far away at all. Hoping that's not an omen. So the project has kind of four work packages. So in the first work package, we're doing a bit of kind of landscaping and mapping. Well, what's, to it try and... what's it called first? So oh, it sorry. Called? It's called The Rain Within the Rainbow. And uh, so cool. in that... Yeah, I, I like it. So in it, we've got these four work packages. And in the first work package, we're doing this kind of yeah landscaping and mapping. So just to try and understand what services are available for LGBTQ plus people experiencing suicidal distress. So the idea being that we'll, we'll look to try and map out mental health organisations and suicide prevention organisations that have some specialism in, in LGBTQ plus suicide. And then also looking at LGBTQ plus organisations that have some specialism around mental health and suicide. So I'm just really trying to understand what support is out there and available across the whole of the UK and across the lifespan. Across the lifespan, that's what it says across the lifespan. Yeah, so, so it'll be looking at children, young people, adults and older adults. And so that that's work package one. In work package two, we will be connecting with people who are, are themselves LGBTQ+, and who have lived experience of suicidal distress, to try and better understand the experiences that folks are having. So what is contributing to experiences of suicidal distress, what's helping people to get better, to recover, to live safely, and what their visions are for kind of the future. And really trying to unpack within that some of that idea of what does it mean to be LGBTQ plus aware in a service? Like what would that look like? And what can we do to improve things? In the third phase, we're going to be talking to people who have lost an LGBTQ plus loved one to suicide. So that might be friends, families, partners, to really try and understand what was happening before that person was lost and also how do those people experience support after that loss so are they do they feel similarly able to access bereavement support services or are they experiencing some of that referred stigma that is coming that um, that we know is experienced by lgbtq plus communities themselves like what's happening there and then in the final package which is super exciting we're hoping to bring together people from those first three work packages to begin to design some ideas around how we might prevent lgbtq plus suicide in the future so really drawing on expertise of practitioners people who themselves have lived experience of LGBTQ plus suicidal distress and people who have been bereaved to suicide losing an LGBTQ plus loved one. And then, and then that, no, that sounds amazing. So much work. What's this, a four-year project, five-year project? Five, five years, five years yeah. I'm just even thinking work package one, I mean, mapping yeah. the services, I mean, for the whole of the UK is one heck of an endeavour, never mind work packages two, yeah. three and four. So then, so what's your in terms of your output that fourth work package? Then is it yeah. so? Is it you're hoping to not you're not going to develop an intervention? Is it resources or are you going to develop an intervention? So, or? so I guess so. I guess it's maybe some of the the pre work that you would need in order to develop that sort of intervention. So really, I guess because because we just don't really know anything about what this would look like. What we would really like to do, and particularly we don't know what this would look like particularly taking in that kind of intergenerational approaches we're looking kind of really across different age groups which hasn't been as far as I can find done before so we really want to understand the specificities of those different types of age brackets as well within this the idea being that we'll maybe be able to get together some general principles some sort of I guess some sort of shaping around what interventions might look like and then 
perhaps that will be able to inform future work to be able to do some of that development around it if that is what people think would be helpful. Yeah, great. Well, that sounds fascinating. But we'll have to wait. Oh, I mean, it's certainly well, tw- yeah. two, What's your space? 2029 before we'll have... I know. <laughs> That'll be... Well, it won't be long coming in, though, of course. Okay, here's a one last question. One last... There's two last questions. One spe- on mm-hmm. this topic and then one unrelated one sort of yeah. trying to bring slightly different just to bring it to a close but again go back to your experience and the work you've been doing over the last few years so i'm telling you what guidance or support or tips you can provide say a family member a friend a colleague of a young person who is lgbtq young person who is struggling any tips on how you could sort of ask those open those conversations have those conversations around suicidal mental mental health have you had any tips from the work you've done so i think something that was really extremely important in terms of support at times of distress for the young people in this particular study people talked about being able to connect with lgbtq plus communities and so that could be like going along to a youth group that's nearby people particularly you know found that really helpful going in and being able to to connect with other lgbtq plus young people particularly if they are themselves perhaps in an area where they don't know anybody else that is a queer young person they feel quite isolated they feel like it's just them being able to go to a group nearby whether that be like a social group or youth group whatever it might be to connect with other people was really important so that they no longer felt like it's just me and they could see actually there are there are other people and this there is a future basically is is the really important message but also I, I know that for some people that can be really tricky if you're in a super rural area perhaps your your transport links aren't great that could be really difficult if you know maybe if we're talking to someone who's working in a school and they know that that that, that might just not be achievable for that young person they're also online groups people had met others online and in those kind of really important supportive spaces and of course that that is that's really the crucial thing where that they can meet other lgbtq plus young people in a supportive online space and i know that there are a variety of youth groups who do run those kind of online spaces where there is a moderator there and they're able to to kind of make sure that everyone is is in a supportive kind of environment is really important and I think just just getting them plugged in with community that might mean that you need to go along with them to that sort of space the first time just make it a little bit easier you might not go in the first time you might just go to the place the first time but really making sure that 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 is supported and that they can meet other people and not feel isolated I think is is crucial fantastic that's really really helpful advice thanks Hazel okay so just one last unrelated question before we finish we always try and finish in some some slightly different yeah. so this question is, is a, I think it's a great question but maybe okay. it's a bit unfair spontaneous so it's a spontaneous question about a spontaneous activity. So the question is, if you could go on a, a spontaneous adventure anywhere in the world right now, where would you go and what would you do? <laughs> I told you. Okay, right. So in year nine, I did a geography project, right? So I'd been like 14, that's like 20 years ago or something. I did a geography project on the Niagara Falls. And I've always wanted to go there, but I have never been. So I think I think maybe the Niagara Falls from Year Nine Geography would be that'd be my one. That's a great answer. A great answer. So the, I'm interested to see whether the geography project 
matches up to the reality and I assume and hopefully it will. I had to physically go to a travel agent and and physically get like a guide to Canada and like cut out pictures that was the geography project that was dedication that was dedication indeed yeah on that note Hazel huge thanks from me on behalf of Yask thanks it was a really fantastic and wide-ranging discussion we'll put the details of the suicide in as politics project on the website and any other, if there's any other details of the work you want, please let us know. We'll put that on the yeah. show notes. And anybody wants to find out more about Hazel Marcetti, just Google Hazel at Edinburgh. You'll see details of her work and her obviously publications are also online. So thanks a million, Hazel. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Rory.